and the creator of Woke Beauty. This show eliminates the power of perspective, compelling you to tune into unfiltered conversations with a dynamic myriad of female visionaries interwoven with my own mental health stories, lessons, and philosophies. Today you'll hear from Alex L., the warm, thoughtful author, wellness educator, and certified breathwork coach you may already know on Instagram as simply Alex. Writing came into her life by way of therapy and the exploration of healing through journaling and mindfulness. The intention behind Alex's work is to build community and self-care practices through literature and language. Alex teaches workshops, courses, and retreats to assist others in finding their voices and create clarity in their lives and relationships. Her work has been featured in a broad range of media outlines, including but not exclusive to The New York Times, NPR, Essence, and Forbes. Her new book, How We Heal, releases in November. Alex, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited to dive into your story and to hear how it connects to your work and to your practice. Thank you so much for having me, Riley. I'm really excited to chat with you. Can you tell me where you were born and how you identify with that place. I was born in Maryland, Montgomery County, Maryland. And I don't know if I identify with it. Um, And I, I don't know why, maybe I've just never thought of that question. But I think my favorite thing about this place is the seasons that we get to experience all of them, which I I love, but fall in particular is probably my favorite season here. And, and, And so I guess how that relates to how I identify with this place is the beauty that I'm able to witness every fall, um, and the rebirth that happens every spring, it really feels aligned with my life. And I kind of (laughs) feel like every time there's a new season happening in my region, it's like, oh, no wonder my mood has been (laughs) affected. Mm. The seasons have changed. And so I suppose I feel connected to the seasons here. um, And that feels good and, and stretching. And I'm able to learn a little bit more about myself and about what season I'm personally in. Um, I guess when change is among us here. Yeah, that makes me think of rituals. I feel like, I don't know, sometimes we can get so connected to how we live, but it's really good to analyze the loopholes and the patterns that we fall into. I feel like rituals change a lot for me with seasons. I'm definitely a sunshine type of girl, though the summers here that I used to love are now just basically unbearable. (laughs) Um, But I'm curious how your rituals shift depending on the season, especially if if you're in a season of difficulty, meaning if the weather has shifted or what's around you isn't as lush or even just like the environment of your home has changed, what rituals come up for you? What do you lean into? Mm. So my daily ritual includes a cup of coffee or a cup of tea and a walk. Um, 
those things I do every single day. And I find that walking in particular has really forced me to look at my feelings when I'm when I'm out in nature, which is something I wasn't expecting when I started my walking journey almost a year ago. Um, but walking through the rain, the snow, the fall, the spring, and now the summer, it's connected me to Mother Earth in a way that I hadn't been before. Um, I'm a lot more present. I'm a lot more grounded. And I find that through each season, I'm able to really tap into how I feel. Um, Last winter was a tough one for me with my anxiety and depression. And um, I committed to taking November and December off and not doing any new work. and just recentering and trying to find myself. And so I did a lot of long walks in the cold and snow and did a lot of listening to the crunch of snow under my feet and trying to figure out like who I was in that season. And it's interesting how how the seasons changing really does invite us to reflect on how we're changing. I love that you brought up walking because um... I, I, you have this great way of, um, turning things that you love into like a form of work and a form of sharing. And I think sometimes when that happens, it's harder for the person creating to stay in love with the modality, you know? Um, I just thought of that because of, you know, this morning walk, which I think you started recently and kind of turned into a little community. And so like you took this more isolated form of self-care and you made it, um, I don't know, you know, something that we could all relate to. And so I'm curious, how have you done that? How have you done that with writing? You know, I know it's been a form of therapy for you, um, but it's also, you know, really um, allowed your career to grow. Um, so how do you maintain that pure love for, you know, these practices that have really aided you through difficult times, even though it's also been a huge part of your work? Mm, That's a good question. And to be fair, this morning walk, I actually, um, didn't start that. It was started by my friend Libby Delena, who wrote the book Do Walk, who got me walking. I read her book before we were friends, and it changed my life. And then she invited me to be a part of her This Morning Walk Instagram page. Um, And now we have a podcast together called This Morning Walk, and we're friends. And it's wonderful that she invited me into her world in that way. Um, So walking for me, I'm going to start there doesn't feel like work. And when I share, you know, stories from my walks or images from my walks, it doesn't feel like work. And so I, because it's not work, it's just something that I do all my time. And I may share a video or I may share a photo or, or Libby and I will talk about our walks on the podcast. And so that's really been still feels really grounded and sacred for me. And I'm so glad that other people are walking even more now, especially black women, like getting up and out and not for fitness, but for 
um, well, not for physical fitness necessarily, but for emotional fitness and wellness and, and moving in a way that feels you know, like we're holding ourselves and making time to go out and be with nature and be with our own thoughts. And so I love this morning walk, but I cannot take credit for creating this morning walk. That was not me. That was Libby Delena. Um, (laughs) But when it comes to writing, now that's really challenging. I don't normally write for personal pleasure anymore, which um, makes me a little bit sad. But when I have manuscripts do and meditations do like I'm doing so much writing that um, I don't necessarily want to write for myself anymore and so I've actually been thinking about like how do I get back to that because now I mean writing is work for me I teach writing I write books I ghost write for celebrities. I write meditations. Like I am in the thick of being a writer, writer, writer. So it's like, whoa. (laughs) Um, But I think what still brings me joy about writing is I know that I can turn to it when I'm unpacking something, when I need that therapy on the page. And I still do that. But as far as as writing for pleasure, like short stories or poems, I don't do that often anymore, which is because I write for a living. And so I don't know. I'm still trying to find the harmony there. Yeah. Well, I think it's okay to recognize that writing has become your work. And I I think the passion and love is, it's just like in the background always, you know, it's kind of like fueling the desire to work in that way. Um, But I think that happens to a lot of people. I used to be an athlete and I think it's really resonant there that you you fall in love with a sport, but the sport kind of consumes you. It consumes your hours. And so it's no longer about the love for the sport, but like the discipline for the sport. You know, how did you decide that writing would be your career? How did you realize that you wanted that for yourself rather than writing being your form of therapy purely? This career happened by accident. I've been writing books now for 10 years, but when I first started, I was self-published and it was all because I had a couple of friends being like, you should create a book. And I was like, no one's going to read a book from me. This was 10 years ago. And they said, it doesn't have to be for anyone. You know, it can just be for you. Um, And then I had a friend say to stop hoarding my happiness and hoarding my story. And that was really eye-opening for me. And so I self-published my first few books and they did exceptionally well for a self-published author. And I was like, oh, people want to hear that they're not alone. People want to see that folks who look like them can experience joy and that folks who go through things that are challenging can come out on the other side. And that's really when I started thinking about writing as a real career. I mean, I worked a nine to five the first, I would say, four or five years of having books out. And mm-hmm. so, um, actually, no, that's not true. I, let me think. Jesus has been so long. Um, <laughs> so I quit my job 10, 10 years ago. Um, so I would say before then, I, 
was writing, but it was just for me. And it was it wasn't until 10 years ago that I was like, oh, I don't have to work a nine to five and I don't want to. And I want to help people by way of writing and um, not just me writing, but getting other people to write. And so it's just been a wild journey. When I look back, I'm like, whoa, it's been 10 years and I've, you know, written five books. My fifth book is called How We Heal and it comes out in November. And um, I've made three journals and like, it's wild to see that there's eight things in the world from me that people are using and reading and have on their shelves and that will outlive me. And so- Mm -hmm. It's interesting because I did not set out to be an author. I knew I loved writing and I knew that my story had some sort of value. Um, And I wanted other people to feel like their stories have value. And so I truly think it was just divine alignment and spirit putting something on my heart and me deciding to go for it. I love that. It just sounds like it was a natural progression and you didn't fight it. I would say you're right about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I, th- I think you've talked about um, your book after the rain being more of a memoir and less of poetry. And I feel like you write poetically, um, but I can see how literally it, it, there's something autobiographical about it. Um, because you share so many of your own personal stories. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm kind of in the midst of exploring a lot of trauma-informed uh, therapy methods like EDMR um, or CPT. And I've thought about like how I write to process my trauma and how sometimes it can actually be a little triggering <laughs> because – I am more of a narrator, more of an essayist. Like I'm really describing my my past instead of like telling a story about my past, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm wondering if that's crossed your mind and, and how you've processed your trauma through writing. Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine there might have to be some boundaries for you. Like maybe you're not going to share everything. I think there's a fine line between sharing our stories and also being mindful of the other people's stories that we're sharing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I, so my first three books were, well, no, Words from a Wanderer was the very first book. It was Notes to Self and Poems. Love in My Language was Essays and Poems. Neon Soul was strictly a poetry book, and After the Rain is part memoir, part guide, Um, and How We Heal is more of a, um, yes, intertwined with my own personal stories, but it's really showing people how to write to heal and um, how to use that practice in their daily lives. So it's more a prescriptive book um, linked with my stories. And so as as time has gone on and my career has expanded and my writing has shifted and deepened, what I have found is when I'm writing about things that are triggering, I do not put everything in on the page that will go in a book, right? So I may write the essay first, really diving into 
the nitty gritty and then I decide what stays and what goes because not everything needs to be in the world. Not everything should be in the world. Some things are really sacred and it's like, how do we continue to tell our stories and be authentic while keeping um, a sense of safety and, and um, boundaries around our stories? You know, like they are sacred. And it's just like, how do we protect our peace and protect our stories while also when we're in careers like writing and therapy and wellness and photography, like how do we capture what we're trying to say or make in a way that feels safe and aligned and good for us? And so that's really what I have unpacked over the past um few years, but especially since after the rain, and I really talk about my childhood in there, my relationship with my mom, um, the relationship I have with myself, with my biological father, who I am estranged from. Um, And so it's like, how do we hold those heavy things on the page while also making sure we're creating a safe space for ourselves emotionally. And that just mm-hmm. comes with um, with honoring and a lot of self-check-ins and realizing that everything isn't for everyone. And, um, and that's okay. And we're allowed to keep certain things to ourselves. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a really beautiful way of explaining it. And it sounds like you've created a really healthy framework, but within that framework, you've still allowed yourself to, you know, be fluid. And vulnerable and authentic because that is a part of the art too, right? Like I can share a story and have it make sense and have it be resonant without giving every single detail. And I think that that is really important. And that's what a good artist does, um, I feel. So, yeah. I feel like you do a really good job of honoring, you know, yourself as being a mother and a wife, but also just being a person, <laughs> um, you know, and, and being a writer. And I I think a lot of that has to do with taking care of yourself and how you identify. How do you put yourself first without feeling guilty or even selfish? Mm. I don't feel guilty or selfish because I do think that self-care is an act of community care. And if I show up empty in my roles, then I am no good for anybody. And so I do not think twice really about honoring myself so that I can not only like live a life that's autonomous outside of my roles to other people and outside of my work. Um, but also so I can lead by example. I'm raising three Black girls and I want them to see their mother taking care of herself. I want them to see their mother um, setting boundaries. I want them to see their mother honoring herself and not feeling guilty about it. I think that we give our children sometimes um, a complex because we are carrying the world on our shoulders and dishonoring ourselves while doing it. And so that's a generational thing that I'm breaking. Um, And I am setting my um, lineage up, I feel like, for joy and possibility and healthy boundaries and happy relationships, both with the self and other people. Um, And so I often, you know, just think about that my children are bearing witness to me 
when I am my best self and when I am my worst. And it's like they see everything and I want them to see um, their mom taking care because I want that to be a practice in their life. Um, and so it's interesting because I say often, hey, we need to honor each other's boundaries. I say that a lot here at home. I have a 14-year-old, a four-year-old, and a two-year-old. And my four-year-old said to me the other day, I had asked her to do something and she wasn't quite ready to do it or I forget what happened, but she looked at me and she goes, you need to honor my boundaries. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, touche, my friend, touche. Okay, well, when you're done doing what you're doing, please come to the kitchen. (laughs) Like, you know, and it's like, it's just wonderful to see what children see and it's Mm -hmm. and not even just children like we have to think about not everyone is going to be a parent not everyone wants to be a parent not everyone is a parent right and so we also have to think about the other people bearing witness to us like when we heal ourselves and care for ourselves we heal our community and care for our community when we heal ourselves we're healing our lineage when we heal ourselves and take care of ourselves we are showing other people not only how to take care of us and how we respond best but also to take care of themselves right and so it's really truly an act of community care all the way around so i do not feel guilty at all i feel like undoubtedly even outside of your household there are people who need what you have to offer and i imagine I mean, I feel like that's just really motivating. Like it must be nice, I think. I mean, I'm sure, you know, being a mother, I know it does. It comes with all kinds of things. But to know that you're being watched, you know, that that people are around you, little people <laughs> watching you, um, it kind of holds you accountable, I would think. And it it makes us realize when we fall short and where we can change and get better and do better, right? So if we are intentional about how we're moving through the world, everything is a lesson, the good and the challenging. Um, And so, yes, it allows (laughs) us to not only accept who we are and where we are and, and the changes that we may need to make, but it also invites us to, um, it also invites us to just live in our truth and without holding ourselves like captive. You know what I mean? Because I, I often think that when it comes to parenting and when it comes to being an intentional human being, there is this practice and ritual that needs to happen for us to be able to really show up as our authentic self. Right. And so a lot of the time, we're not able to do that because we're so caught up in our guilt and in our shame, which I think is truly conditioning from not only how we were raised at some points, I know for me, but also societally, right? Um, especially when you're a caretaker, especially when you may be a public figure, especially if you are a leader in your industry or at your job. Like there's so many things that we feel like we can't say no to, that we can't take care of ourselves. We're too busy. There's no time. And it's just like people are watching. And I think that that's really the invitation. Not only it's not like we're performing for people, but we are really deeply honoring ourselves. And when we do that, it gives other people permission to do the same in their lives. And so 
I really resonate with uh, with what you just said. Hmm. You've said that silence is a form of self-care and it made me think about anxiety and the trains of thought running super loud and super fast that arise when you feel anxious. And I know that anxiety is something that you've struggled with. I think personally, sometimes I almost feel averse to quieting myself. It's like anxiety is somehow almost like addicting once you once you're there. And so I want to know how you find silence and how you maintain it. Mm. I find silence on my walks. I find silence in prayer and meditation and I maintain it by giving myself the space to go for my walks every day. Um giving myself the space to really ground down and not have anything to say. And as someone who has anxiety and depression and OCD, um, it can be challenging to, to quiet the noise, right? But I welcome it. I welcome the challenge and I give myself permission to like be in the discomfort of silence, but also be in the deep clarity that silence gives me. What? therapeutic practices have helped you most, especially through hardship? I know you've talked about just now, you, you mentioned walking and prayer and meditation. Are there other practices that really pulled you through hardship? Because I feel like once you're there in, in the hardship, like in the thick of it, it can be hard to practice those things that can help you get out of it. You know, it's like you have to, you have to first arrive and when you're in a space of balance and, you know, when you're healthy, it's easier to like enforce the ritual, you know, but how do you get out of it when you're down? I think for me, it's about acknowledging the feelings that I'm feeling, acknowledging the pain, the hurt, the sadness, and not turning away from those things, acknowledging the fear and looking at it, acknowledging the heartbreak and looking at it, acknowledging the grief and looking at it. Um, and that in itself is a ritual and a practice for me because I am quick to be like, nope, not dealing with that and turn away. But <laughs> that's unhelpful because then I turn back around and it's still there, right? And so um, creating a practice of acknowledging has been extremely helpful for me. Um, I also take medication. I take Zoloft for my anxiety, depression, and OCD, which has helped me enormously. Um, and when I feel extremely overwhelmed, I will go down and rest, take a nap, recalibrate, turn my brain off for a second, let my body do its thing while I'm sleeping. And normally I feel much better when I rise. Um, and then when I'm feeling like really, really anxious, I go to the infrared sauna, which I know that is a deep privilege to be able to go to a place like that. And it's just like, okay, I'll go to the sauna and just sweat it out. And so the key here, I think, is to 
tune in to what we want and what we need. It may not be sauna for some folks. It may not be meds for some folks. It may not be walks. But find the thing that soothes yourself, that soothes your soul. Self-soothing is not just for babies. It is for adults as well. And so we have to find the things that really nourish us in our moments of depletion and sadness and anxiety and um, depression because those are heavy, real things. And there are times when we can't do anything but take a nap, you know, when we can't do anything but like deep breathe through it. Um, And so we have to find what works for us and what gives us a sense of um, comfort and safety in those turbulent moments. I think a lot of people will find that inspiring and almost feel permission, you know, based on the example that you've set. So I, I really, I really appreciate that. I mean, you are a leader in your industry and uh, I'm blown away by how, how much you show up. Like, I do think social media can be a form of work. I don't know. For me, it, it is. It, it is absolutely like work, work. Yeah. Right. <laughs> even, I feel like even for people who don't need it to work, it feels like work, you know? Right. Right. Um, and so how who do you look to for guidance, for mentorship? Where do you find those people? Especially mm. as someone who who has really discovered a, a higher self and who has fallen into step. You know, how do you how do you find those people? Mm. And and what do they look like? I mean, you don't have to say who they are, you know what I mean? But, but what characteristics are you looking for and what place do they have in your life? It's interesting because all of my teachers, I feel like, are ancestors or former authors or current authors. And so I don't know any of these people personally, but they <laughs> live in my homes, or in, in their books, um, mm. on my shelf. And so Thich Nhat Hanh, um, Maya Angelou, Mary Oliver, um, Toni Morrison, Bell Hooks, um, Pema Children, oh, her big time, big time, big yeah. time. Yeah. Um, Kent Nurburn, I actually recently just discovered him and mm-hmm. I'm listening to his book, Small Graces. Um, and it's just, wow, it's profound. It's an, only an hour long and it's just stunning, the lessons in there. And so um, those are some of the teachers in my life. They're all authors, Mitch Album. Um, you know, just people who speak my language in a way that I can understand. And that's, I want to, I want to touch on that because as an author and as a writer and as a teacher, my goal is to speak and write in a way that people understand. That's why I think I'm so drawn to Pema's work and Thich Nhat Hanh's work, specifically Pema, because she gives it to you like it is with that Zen Buddhist teaching underneath. But she speaks in layman's terms, which is like, oh, I get that. That makes sense. And so when when I'm writing and when I'm teaching, I want people to be like, I understand Alex. I understand what she's trying to say. I don't have to guess that she's trying to say something. And so that's really what I find important as a writer and as a teacher is getting people comfortable with saying things in a way that's straightforward. We live in a world with like beautiful language and 
metaphors and analogies and all of those things. And a lot of times I'll read books. I'm like, what the hell are they talking about? <laughs> are we talking about inner child work here? And if so, how? <laughs> like, I don't understand, right? And so giving people the space to show up as their full human self without big words, giving people yeah. the space to show up in their feelings without big words. And just like, I'm sad today. And here is why I'm sad. Or I am feeling deep joy today. And here is here are the things that are making me feel joy. Right. And like getting back to the basics of language so that we can relate to each other um, in a really authentic and clear way. If your little ones could walk through life, those beautiful little souls, <laughs> with the knowledge of one instrumental lesson, one that you've experienced that like you had to experience in order to learn, what would you want it to be? You don't need to get lost in love. Thank you.